Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. This is Francine Prose. I'm going to be reading from my novel, My New American Life. Uh, the section I'm reading is near the beginning. My heroine is a young Albanian woman named Lula who's living in New Jersey. She's a recent immigrant. Her boss is named Mr. Stanley, and she's working as a kind of nanny, but really a paid friend for a 17-year-old boy named Zeke who doesn't really need a nanny. Um, as the section begins, she's watching this mysterious... Lexus SUV driving up and down the street, and she's hoping it has nothing to do with her. And Lulu's thinking back in this section to uh, the first time she met her boss, whose name is Mr. Stanley. And at that point, Lulu was working as a waitress in a restaurant called La Changuita on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. Now, as she watched the brand-new SUV prowl the suburban street, she was sure, or almost sure, it had nothing to do with her. For one thing, she didn't know anyone in this snooty town, and no one knew her. Mama dead, Papa dead, may their souls rest in peace, not that she believed in the soul. She hoped that they were in a heaven, which she also didn't believe in, that was as little as possible, like Albania. But would they have wanted that? When her dad drank, which was constantly, he said he would die for his homeland, and, in his own way, he had. Lula still had a few aunts, uncles and cousins sprinkled around Albania and Kosovo, but they'd lost touch. An Albanian without a family was a walking contradiction. Of course, she hadn't said this to the embassy officer in Tirana, who'd approved her tourist visa. She'd brought in pictures of neighborhood kids, whom she claimed were nephews and nieces she could hardly bear to leave for that last fling vacation before she came home and married her childhood sweetheart. She'd said Christmas wedding a dozen times so the guy wouldn't suspect she was half Muslim. Dad's mom, her granny, was Christian. Wasn't that enough? Anyway, Muslim meant nothing in communist, post-communist Albania. An American wouldn't know that. Muslim meant Muslim to him. She'd said, I want to see the world, starting with Detroit, where my aunt lives. The officer smiled. How cute. His heart flopped for the Albanian girl, so innocent she thought Detroit was the world. One look at Detroit, she'd jump on the first plane home and shrivel into a raisin before she was 35. Lula crossed and uncrossed her legs. On the visa officer's wall was a poster of the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Lula had to convince him she wasn't planning to stay. Everyone lied to the embassy. It didn't count as a lie. Since 9-11, they made you lie, but that hadn't stopped one Albanian girl or boy from wanting to come to New York. The Lexus turned and passed the house. Mr. Stanley had given Lula a cell phone that he liked her to keep charged, though she never called anyone and no one called her, not since her best friend Dunya had left the country and gone home. Mr. Stanley had programmed in their home phone number. Mr. Stanley's cell and work phone, Zeke's cell phone, and Don Cetabello's office. She was the only person on earth with five numbers on her phone. She was like the girl in the fairy tale, the princess in the tower. One of the made-up traditional folk stories she'd written for Mr. Stanley and Don Cetabello was about a beautiful maiden imprisoned in a castle. 
A prince sees her at the window, falls in love, and, unable to reach her, transplants a strong, quick-growing vine from his native region. The good news is he climbs the vine and rescues her. The bad news is that the vine grows and grows and wipes out the local farmers, their punishment for locking her up in the first place. Don especially liked that one, which, he said, proved that indigenous folk cultures foresaw the threat of species importation and genetic engineering. Next fall, Zeke would leave for college, and Lulu would have to figure out the next phase of her new American life. That is, if things went according to plan, though Lula couldn't have said what the plan was or who designed it. She'd saved $1,500, which was reassuring, though hardly the astronomical sum she might have thought before she saw the drink tabs at La Changuita. She kept the money in cash in the secret compartment of the old-fashioned desk in her room, the so-called guest room, though Zeke said they'd never had guests. Next September was the cut-off date, her target day for leaving. By then, she would have spent almost two years at Mr. Stanley's, a fact she tried not to dwell on. She was too young to have her life fall away in chunks like the glaciers crumbling nightly on the Nature Channel. Deep autumn had already come on when she'd answered Mr. Stanley's ad on Craigslist. Dunya was still in the country. Their tourist visas were expiring. They were waitressing illegally at La Changuita, near Tompkins Square. All evening, Lula and Dunya drank with the loud, young, undertipping Wall Streeters left in the sweating pitchers painted with happy monkeys. After the owners, rat face and goggles, went home, Luis the cook fed the waitstaff his special ropa vieja, and everyone got drunk and bet on who'd get deported first. They knew it wasn't funny. The day after Eduardo, the busboy didn't show up for his shift. His wife came into the restaurant crying. Eduardo had gone to settle a parking ticket, and now he was somewhere, his wife hoped, between New York and Carrero. Tears bubbled through the curtain of her little son's lashes. Bleeding Heart Lula and Dunya had to talk each other out of adopting Eduardo's family and bringing them home to share the tiny Ludlow Street walk-up that wasn't even theirs. By that point, Lula's visa problem was keeping her up at night. She told herself not to worry. The government had plenty of people to deport before they got around to her busboys like Eduardo, Arab engineering students, hordes of cab drivers and cleaners. On the other hand, who would a bored, horny, INS dude rather have in detention? Eduardo, some Yemeni geezer in a skullcap, or two 26-year-old Albanian girls with shiny hair and good tits? Lula and Dunya had shared a one-bedroom on the Lower East Side with a Ukrainian girl, an unemployed dental assistant who was never home, and a beanpole from Belarus who wanted to be a runway model and gave them a break on the rent if they pretended not to hear her puking in the bathroom. Lula said they had to do something about their immigration status, but Dunya said if they did nothing, something good would happen. Dunya's mother was a Christian scientist, a rarity in Albania, and sometimes Lula heard the mother's soft, prayerful voice under the daughter's raucous smoker's croak. Lula believed in watching out in contingency plans, common sense. Dunya had often told Lula that she should try being a half-full glass person instead of a half-empty glass person. In Lula's opinion, she and Dunya traded off half-emptiness and half-fullness, but you couldn't argue with Dunya, so she'd let it go. When Lula showed Dunya Mr. Stanley's Craigslist ad, divorced man looking for companion for teenage son, Baywater, New Jersey, 10 miles from downtown Manhattan, Lula said, 10 miles if you swam. Dunya also said that a Slovakian girl she knew answered an ad like that, and it was an escort service. 
Genius Junior was back in Tirana now, or so Lula hoped. Not long after Lula moved to New Jersey, Dunya phoned, yelling above the La Chanquita racket, babbling in Albanian, which they'd mostly stopped speaking by then, that two men in black suits had come looking for her at the restaurant, and she was going home before they deported her. Since then, Lula's emails had bounced back, and no one answered when she called Dunya's mom in Beirut. She'd looked on Facebook and MySpace, but Dunya wasn't there. She tried not to think about the things that could have happened to her friend— what if the men in black suits were worse than INS agents? Lula didn't know how to look for Dunya short of going back to Albania and hiring a detective. Lula and Mr. Stanley had arranged to meet for the first time in the financial district for coffee. Even in the Starbucks gloom, it was clear that Mr. Stanley wasn't looking for a girlfriend or even occasional sex, but, like his listing said, for a responsible person to watch his kid. From a distance, Lula had tagged him as a depressed mid-level accountant, but up close he turned out to be a depressed something higher up, which meant he could pay Lula very well for doing almost nothing. At the interview, Mr. Stanley explained that his wife had left, abandoned him and Zeke, and traveled to the Norwegian fjords because she wanted to start over somewhere clean and white. Ginger, he said, my wife. His voice had the pinched, slightly nasal timbre of a chronic sinus sufferer. That's a scream, Lula had said. It was funny, a woman named Ginger, like being named Salt, and funny that a woman would want something whiter than Mr. Stanley. Then Mr. Stanley told her that just before Ginger left, she'd begun to develop some serious mental health issues. He tilted his head toward Lula to see if she knew what he meant, if what he was saying translated into whatever Lula spoke. Lula knew and she didn't know. She'd found his unspoken doubts about her comprehension, like so many things in this country, at once thoughtful and insulting. An illness, Mr. Stanley had said, for which no one had managed to find an effective medication or even a diagnosis. Christmas Eve, said Mr. Stanley, would be a year since his wife's departure. They'd managed him and Zeke, but he worried about his son alone for so many hours. Then he'd ask what Lula was, meaning from what country. He said he wouldn't have thought Albanian. He seemed to find it amusing. Lula said, I grew up in Albania, but my parents were visiting my dad's cousin in Kosovo, and they got stuck there when the war broke out, and the Serbs came and tried to murder everyone. They couldn't get home to Tirana. They were killed in the NATO bombing. The smile dribbled off Mr. Stanley's face. It was the perfect moment to mention that her visa was running out. Mr. Stanley said he had a childhood friend, Don Cetabello, a famous immigration lawyer. There'd been a profile of him in the New York Times. Don was a miracle worker. A few days after the interview, Mr. Stanley drove Lula out to meet Zeke and see his brick battleship of a house with wavy, leaded glass windows and a curved porch bulging from one side like a goiter. A gnarled tree in the front yard had purpled the sidewalk with berries. She hadn't thought there were houses like that so near the city, nor fat crows that sat in the mulberry tree and warned her not to take the job. Mind your own business, she told the crows. Excuse me, said Mr. Stanley. Albanian superstition, a lying voice explained through Lula's mouth. Zeke's hair was as black as the crows, but duller, and a thick, octagonal, silver bolt emptied a space in one earlobe. Zeke's excessive smile was a mocking imitation of someone forced to communicate pleasure or harmlessness or just simple politeness. 
Zeke shook her hand, his long body slumped in an S-curve, checking her out even as he acted too annoyed to see her. Veto power was all he had. It was easier if he liked her. And Lula was hardly the wicked witch prison guard he'd imagined his father hiring. Mr. Stanley had left the two of them in the living room. What do you do now, Zeke said. I'm a waitress in the Mojito district. So is Zeke your real name? Why do you ask? Sunk in the couch across the room, Zeke peered at her from beneath his inky slick of hair. Because it sounds like someone frightened. Zeke, Zeke, Zeke. Or like a little bird. It's my name. How did you learn English? In school, in Albania. You speak perfect English. You sound like a British person. Thank you. Our teacher was British. Plus, I took private tutoring from an Australian. The next generation younger than me, they all learned English from SpongeBob SquarePants. SpongeBob is gay, said Zeke. Lula said, so what? Ezekiel, said Zeke, like in the Bible. Lula said, I never read the Bible. I grew up atheist, half Muslim, half Christian. Normally, she never mentioned the Muslim part, so already she must have felt that Zeke could be trusted not to think she was plotting to wage jihad on McDonald's. Zeke said, there's an Iranian kid in my class. He kept getting his ass kicked in public school, so they put him in my school where everybody's super tolerant. His dad's a famous eye surgeon. They live in a mega mansion. Albania is the most tolerant society in the world, said Lula. Good for it, said Zeke. He turned on the TV, and together they watched a hard-looking Spanish girl make out with male and female contestants, deciding which she liked better. Lula sensed she was being tested, not on her response to the show, but on her response to Zeke watching the show. What was her reaction? Boredom passed the test. Zeke heard his father in the hall and switched off the TV. What restaurant did you say you worked at? La Changuita, Lula said, the little monkey. Zeke asked if she could make mojitos. She'd said, we'd need fresh mint. Mr. Stanley appeared in the doorway. I see we found plenty to talk about. Mr. Stanley often said we or one when he meant you or I. Sometimes Zeke imitated him, but only under his breath, so his father could pretend not to hear Zeke say, one would, one might, one should, in Mr. Stanley's voice. At first, Lula wondered if this usage was correct, if there was something wrong with her English. None of the young Wall Street guys talked like that. The mystery of Mr. Stanley's career was solved when Zeke explained that his father used to be professor of economics until he let himself get recruited by a bank, which he seriously regretted, even though he made lots more money than he had as a teacher. Maybe nobody else applied for Lula's job. Maybe no one wanted to live with the sad sack father and son. Maybe Mr. Stanley thought Lula was a war refugee, which, strictly speaking, was true, and that he was doing a good deed, which, strictly speaking, was true. Lula wouldn't have hired herself to take care of a kid. She would have asked more questions, though Mr. Stanley did ask quite a few. It was unlike him not to require notarized letters of reference. But she turned out to be good with Zeke, so maybe Mr. Stanley had sent some maternal feeling burbling up inside her, or the decency that Lula prided herself on maintaining, despite her many character flaws and the world's efforts to harden her heart. Lula was 26. Old, she thought, on dark days, only 26 on bright ones. She had time, but she had more time if she stayed in this country. She wanted to learn that American trick, staying young till 40. Some American girls even got better looking, not like Eastern Europeans who started off ahead but fell off a cliff and scrambled back up a grandma. Maybe the pressure to marry aged them before their time. 
but there was no pressure on Lula. If her ancestors wanted grandchildren, they were keeping quiet about it. To make everything official, Mr. Stanley had taken her into his so-called library, the dank, mildew-smelling, manly lair, where he hardly ever went except to pay bills. The shelves were empty but for a few rows of dusty books that Mr. Stanley must have used in his university courses. He said, "'Come into my parlor,' said the spider to the fly. "'I suppose we should talk about terms.'" Over Mr. Stanley's desk was a framed, antique print of an exploding volcano. Lula watched his sparks fly as Mr. Stanley spelled out the rules. Be there when Zeke got home from school, no drinking or smoking in the house, no driving in bad weather, in fact, no driving anywhere except to the good earth market. Make Zeke eat an occasional vegetable. No overnight guests except relatives with Mr. Stanley's approval. Always lock up when she left. Mr. Stanley used to subscribe to a burglar alarm service, but it had a discontinued when it turned out that the service was robbing houses. When she'd asked Mr. Stanley to pay her in cash, he assured her banks were safe. She said she was sorry, but Albanians had such a bad history with banks. Her voice trailed off into the economic catastrophe and massive social unrest that came after communism, like those last scenes in the horror films when the maniac pops up from the grave. You've heard about our pyramid scheme, offering investors 50%. What was anyone thinking? The government was in on it, too. Everybody got wiped out. Mr. Stanley had nodded tiredly. He said, of course I remember scary stuff. It could happen anywhere. Sure, we can do this in cash. Probably it was wiser, seeing as how Lula didn't yet have a work visa, though Don Setabella would fix that. Mr. Stanley said, if I ever get tapped for a government job, you'll have to deny you know me. Sure, said Lula, we never met. Joke, said Mr. Stanley. Lula knew that some Americans cheered every time INS agents raided factories and shoved dark little chicken packages into the backs of trucks. She'd seen the guys on Fox News calling for every immigrant except German supermodels and Japanese baseball players to be deported, no questions asked. But others, like Mr. Stanley and Don Setabello, acted as if coming from somewhere else was like having a handicap or surviving cancer. It meant you were brave and resilient and being able to help you made them feel better about themselves and their melting pot country. Their motives were pure, or mostly pure. They liked power and being connected. They liked knowing which strings to pull. Now Lula would be able to stay. Everyone would be happy. The Balkans had no expression for win-win situation. In the Balkans, they said, no problem, and the translation was, you're screwed. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories like this, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.